So Revelation 3, and we are going to talk about the church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a a relatively young city of all the cities that are addressed in the letters to the churches of Asia. Uh, This is the youngest city, and so this church, uh, perhaps because of that, has been uh, least affected by the worldliness around it. Uh, The church at Philadelphia is uh, one of the two churches that uh, receives no censure from the Lord Jesus. Instead, uh, she receives only commendation. She's praised uh, for her faithfulness and for her willingness to keep the word that Jesus has given to her. The church at Philadelphia is dwelling in a city that is marked by emperor worship. Uh, In fact, a long pattern of emperor worship. Uh, Philadelphia is... um, a church that sits southeast of Sardis, so we're we're turning the corner on the ancient mail route, and we're starting to head south. And this church is in a region that's marked by volcanic activity and and lots of earthquakes. And just maybe maybe sixty to to eighty years prior uh, to the writing of the Revelation, the church has been in a a city that was in a rebuilding season. They've experienced destruction um, during the during the earthquake at the turn of the century, and they were city was leveled, and so they had to rebuild everything. And one of the things that happened as a part of that rebuilding is that the Roman emperor emperor gave them uh, a pass on paying tribute for five years. They they had to pay no taxes to the emperor, and so they were able to take that money and put it into rebuilding their city. And because of that, they were incredibly grateful, and they turned their gratitude for having been uh, pardoned and relieved of that tax burden for a period of years back in praise to the emperor. And so they established uh, multiple cults to the emperor, uh, places of worship uh, to the emperor because they saw the emperor as God. And so you see that in a, in a repetitive fashion. They, they have an, a place of worship to Flavius Caesar. Uh, there becomes a place of worship to uh, Domitian. They, they have an ongoing pattern of worshiping emperors and so being known by that in Philadelphia. In fact, their name comes from that devotion um, to Roman leaders, and, and so their name comes from an early Roman leader that had influence over them. They were used prior to their occupation by the Romans. Philadelphia is a place that uh, is sort of on the borderlands and was an outpost of, a, of an earlier Greek rule, and they were, uh, they were caused to influence Asian and Oriental cities, the cities that were further east beyond them that that really were not influenced by Greek culture. When the Greeks took over, they expected the leaders in Philadelphia to push that influence onto the rest of the world and to uh, cause Greek culture to take place and take root um, further and further east. In many ways, Philadelphia is a gateway city. It's a place where many paths cross. But as a young city, it's not had the greatest influence on the church. The church has not been undone by the wickedness of the world. They've been faithful to Jesus, even though they have little power. As in each of these letters, Jesus starts by identifying himself. And so let's read together these verses, verses 7 through 13, and then we'll begin by talking about Jesus's identity. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One 
the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus starts and he identifies himself to the church at Philadelphia. And he does this in three ways in verse 7. The first thing that Jesus says about himself is that he is the Holy One who has the anointing of the Father and is sold out in his devotion to the Father. When Jesus says that he is the Holy One, he wants you to understand not just that he is equivalent to the Father. The Father has often been designated as the Holy One of Israel. But more than that, Jesus wants us to understand that he is the Messianic figure who is sold out, who is particularly devoted to God, one who keeps the holiness code, one who is pious and righteous and altogether true. Jesus wants us to understand that he is the one who is set apart because he is the anointed of the Father. In Mark chapter 1, we've read this in recent days, but in Mark chapter 1, there's the casting out of a demon in verse 24. And the demon responds when Jesus addresses it. The demon responds saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a designation of his messianic title, of his, of his presence as the Christ of God. In John chapter 6, in verses 68 and 69, you hear these words that Simon Peter addressed Jesus when he said, Will you all walk away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus says he's the Holy One, and that's his way of saying, I'm the anointed, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And then Jesus says that he's the true one. For Jesus to say that he's the true one is more than Jesus saying that he's the truth. John's acquainted with the reality that Jesus is the truth. We hear those words of Jesus in the 14th chapter of John when he is preparing his disciples on the night of his betrayal for his crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus says to them that he is the way and the truth and the life. But this is not just about the quality that Jesus embodies and personifies, that he is indeed the the personification of truth itself, truth as opposed to lie, truth as an absolute value statement. But it's more than that. 
Jesus saying that he is the true one is him embracing all of the Old Testament import about truth. And it's his way of declaring that he is the one who keeps his word, who is always faithful, who can be trusted to care for his own because Jesus measures up. He is true. Like a building that has been laid square, Jesus is true. Like something that measures up to the plumb line in Amos, Jesus is true. Like the one who keeps the law perfectly, Jesus is true. When everything else is false, when every other measure of mankind's devotion fails, Jesus always measures up to the perfection that the Father requires. He in and of himself is true. And because of that, Jesus calls his people to be true to him. Being true to Jesus, as we walk through this passage, we'll see, is not just a matter of affirming a set of facts. Often in our discussions of faith and practice, we think of the gospel as a set of realities that must be affirmed or assented to. Certainly, we can't believe the gospel without affirming the basic tenets of the faith. But if the affirmation of certain truths is all that's required for life in the kingdom of God, then we have misunderstood what the claims of Scripture are. Because the gospel necessitates that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and then we are conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' presence and image. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, when he tells us that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that his purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of God's beloved Son. What God is doing in us by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ, is causing us to be true, to be the image of Christ, conformed to Him, embracing His pattern, walking in His way, becoming holy even as He is holy. We're sinful people, and on this side of eternity, we will not fully be what we ought to be. And yet we are in the process of being conformed to that image. And Jesus is perpetually calling you and me to be true to him, to be patterned after him because he is always and ever true to us. One of the things that comes into view when Jesus says that he is true is the fact that Jesus keeps his promises to his people in the history of the Old Testament, the most, the most important promise is that God has promised to make a people for his own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In fact, God says in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and God reveals something of his character as he makes a covenant promise to his people. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, you hear God say that the Lord, the Lord is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps love for thousands, but he will not clear the guilty. He visits condemnation on the, on the children to the third and the fourth generation, he says. 
And all of that is in view. All of that covenant promise of God to both vindicate his people and vanquish his foes is in view when Jesus says, I am the true one. He is saying, I am the keeper of the covenant. I embrace all that the Father has willed for his people. And then Jesus says this about himself. This is the third identification that Jesus makes. He says that he has the key of David, which he opens, with which he opens and closes the doors of gospel advancement. Jesus says in verse one, or excuse me, verse seven, he says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. When Jesus talks about the key of David, what he's talking about is the fact that he is the one who unlocks all of the promise that Israel held in the ministry of David, the king of Israel. David is the one to whom God has promised a forever rule and reign. David is the one who will never be without a son to sit upon the throne of Israel. It's David's son that is the anointed of God. And so when Israel thinks back about the rule of kings over her life, when she's looking for someone to be grateful for, to emulate, to to say, this is the one we like. She looks back to David. And David is the one who holds in and of himself all the promise because God has promised in him forever rule, forever reign, authority over his people. It's David who symbolizes the sort of victory and power and the zenith of their, their life together as the people of God. And so Jesus comes along and he says, I have the key of David. And it's his way of saying that I unlock all of the promise that you hold in David, that God has set forth in David. David holds the promise of Messiah, I'm him. David holds the promise of a forever reign, I hold that place, I reign forever. David's the one who holds the promise of the anointed, I have the favor of God resting upon me. It's David's root. It's David's offspring that are going to come up. Jesus descends from his line. And if David holds all the hope of an eternal kingdom for the people of God, then Jesus and Jesus alone, by holding the key of David, is the one who reveals what that kingdom looks like. It's Jesus Christ who unlocks and closes doors. And it's Jesus Christ who reveals who the people of God really are and how the people of God are really to live in relation to their Lord. One of the things that we see again in God's letter, in Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia that we have seen before is the addressing of those who claim to be Jews but are not really And it will cause us perhaps some frustration and we might even become indignant. And there are certainly those people who have read these passages and say that this is anti-Semitic because they don't understand that not everyone who has an ethnic tie to Abraham really belongs to Abraham. 
In fact, you may struggle with this. You may say that every person who descends from Abraham, every person who comes from the line of Isaac, every person who has this claim to be from the descendants of Jacob, that they are all Israel, that they are ethnically Jewish, that they are the people of God. But when we read the New Testament, it's abundantly clear that the people of God are those who are Abraham's children by faith. The real Jewish people are not those who merely have ethnic relationship to Abraham, but those who have a kinship to Abraham in that their faith counts them as righteous. And all of that comes into view when we hear these words about the synagogue of Satan, because Jesus is not condemning those who have an ethnic tie to Abraham as though that in and of itself is a quality to be condemned. Remember, Jesus has an ethnic tie to Abraham. Instead, Jesus is trying to draw the distinction in the hearts of Jewish believers in him to say that the right fulfillment of the Jewish faith is the confident assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. And to reject Jesus as Messiah is to prove that you don't really belong to the God of Abraham by faith. And when Jesus says that he holds the key of David, he is declaring, I am the one who gets to define who really belongs to the people of God. When he talks about the fact that with that key, he opens doors that no man can close and closes doors that no man can open, our first thought might be to say, well, this is, this is Jesus talking about opening the doors of heaven or opening the doors of hell to judgment, but I think if we look at the pattern of the New Testament and particularly in the book of Acts, what we know about open doors is that the opening of doors by God is often about the propagation of the gospel. It's about gospel advancement. What we see in the book of Acts is that there were doors that were closed to those who were called into missionary service and there were doors that were open to them that they couldn't deny. What we see Paul praying for, even in Colossians chapter 4, praying for an open door, an opportunity to keep the gospel moving forward. And so I think when Jesus says, I hold the key of David, and with it I open doors that no one can close, and close doors that no one can open. And when he says to his people, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut, Jesus is saying that from a church with little power, there are great opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. So Jesus identifies himself in verse 7. And then in verse 8, Jesus declares what he knows. In each of the letters, Jesus tells us what he knows about his church. And here Jesus knows something about the church in the city of brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia. Jesus says this, he knows that his church is weak but worthy because they haven't given way. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. 
Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Often in Scripture, we have, the, we have a, a, a statement that, that reveals something both, both positively and negatively. And you see that here in verse 8. And so the positive statement is this, that the church at Pergamum has kept Jesus' word. And the negative statement is that they have not denied his name. And so Jesus here is saying to the church, I know your works. I can make an assessment of how you're living your life. And here's what I see about you. These things go hand in hand. One complements the other. On the positive side, here's what you're actively doing. Actively, you are keeping my word. And then negatively, here's what you're shunning. You're shunning the denial of my name. You are not denying my name. It's important that these things go together because it might be possible, it might be possible for us to say that we love Jesus, that we, we believe his gospel, uh, that we hold to his teachings, and yet we don't condemn evil. It might be possible that we say we're devoted to Christ, but we don't do the works that he set before us to do. It might be possible that we claim some sort of passive allegiance to Jesus and his church. But in all reality, we have no active faith. And Jesus says, what I see in the church that is without censure, the church that's actually doing it right, what I see is a church that's both actively pursuing me and then, and then they're not denying me. Jesus says that the church at Philadelphia has little power. I know you have but little power, he says. And yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So I want to teach you four lessons of little power. These are the four lessons of little power. Number one, the gospel can advance. The gospel can advance when the church has little political power. And these are lessons from the New Testament. We'll look at some passages together. The gospel can advance when the church has little political power. If we go back to Acts chapter 7, you all know this. That's the story of what? Anybody? Acts 7? The stoning of Stephen, right? So Acts chapter 6. We have the church coming out of some difficult moments in Acts chapter 5 where uh, we have characters like Ananias and Sapphira who strike against the unity of the faith and, and the, the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 6, we have need that arises. And so uh, there's the appointing of, of the first deacons, the prototypes of servants in the church. And in Acts chapter 6, we also have uh, that these deacons, these men who are servants in the church, they're filled with faith and spirit and the wisdom, and they're going forward with the gospel. And Stephen, one of those seven, he's a great preacher, and he's preaching the word, and it causes great upset. And the, the council, the political leaders in Jerusalem, they are not only indifferent, they're indignant toward his message. They want him to be silenced, and they are intent on destroying 
destroying him. And so Acts chapter 7 is this beautiful sermon where Stephen preaches the gospel and the story of redemption. And you know the end of the story that when Stephen gets to the end of his preaching, he is stoned to death on account of his faith in the Lord Jesus. But then if you read into Acts chapter 8, you see that it's the stoning of Stephen. It's the, it's the political oppression of the body of Christ that leads to the church being scattered. And it's out of the church being scattered that they begin to fulfill the Great Commission and to do what Jesus has called them to do, to be his witnesses beyond Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a reminder for us that political power is not necessary for the advancement of the gospel. In fact, oftentimes political power is a hindrance. We live in a world where certainly the church does not have political power, not in the West, not in the United States. But you all lived through a time, and I grew up in a time, when we thought we were going to have it. Everybody in the late 70s and 80s and into the 90s that witnessed the moral majority and the rise of the Christian right thought that we had attained a new standard for the propagation of the gospel and the building of the kingdom of God, that it was going to come through the halls of Congress and the election of, of those who were favorable toward our cause. And in the last 20 years, we've watched it all come crumbling down. And in the rubble, we have often found the leaders of that moral majority sitting in the ashes of their own public humiliation because of their sin. It's a reminder to us that whether God favors us politically or not, the gospel goes forward. Because political power isn't required for the advancement of the gospel. Number two, I want you to see that the gospel can advance when the church has little numerical power. Little numerical power. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and, and companions, he, they make their way to, to a little place called Philippi. Do you remember when they made their way to Philippi, they, they went somewhere first. Where, where did they go? Anybody remember? They didn't have a synagogue in Philippi, so they went where? They went down by the water. That's exactly right. They went down by the water because that was where they believed there'd be a... What's that? I know. I know. it. That's good. It's, it usually comes the other way, so, so it's, it's on the other foot tonight. <laughs> so they go down to the water, and they're going there because that's where they believed there would be a place of prayer. And you remember that they encounter a woman named Lydia who's a seller of purple. And Lydia becomes, uh, she becomes obedient to the faith. She embraces Jesus as her Savior. And you remember that there's a, a scene where they cast out a demon out of a, a girl that's enslaved and, and who is being used because of this demon that's inside of her. And her life is forever changed and and then you remember that they wind up in jail because of that. Paul and Silas, they're praying and praising God under the pressure of prison. And in the middle of the night, in the middle of the jail, as they seek the face of God and praise His holy name, God, God delivers them. 
And in a moment when a jailer is going to take his life because he believes that all of the prisoners have fled, God causes Paul to step forward and bring a word of hope. And this jailer and his whole household are saved. And so what do you have? you you got Lydia and a slave girl and, and a jailer's family. It's just a small group of people. But out of that small group of people is birthed a church that is dynamically used of the Holy Spirit to propagate the gospel. You say, how do you know that? Because it's the church at Philippi, one of the only churches that Paul is willing to receive financial support from. Everybody else, Paul is shunning their financial support. He doesn't want to cause them to stumble. At Thessalonica, he says, I'm going to work for myself in order to to not cause any sort of hindrance. But it's the church at Philippi. Their witness is so strong. Their faith so vibrant. Their commitment to Jesus so secure that Paul is willing to not only encourage their faith, but to receive their financial support as he advances the gospel. God takes that little group of people And he builds a great church. It doesn't take numerical power to advance the gospel. You only need remember the story of the day of Pentecost and how there there are just 120 who are gathered seeking the face of God. But out of 120, God bears witness and thousands are converted. Number three, the gospel can advance when the church has little financial power. The gospel can advance when the church has little financial power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you remember that the Apostle Paul is writing an appeal letter to the church at Corinth. Because they've made a promise, a commitment, haven't they? They've committed to give, and Paul's called them to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the first four verses, Paul calls the church at Corinth to set aside on the first day of the week according to their increase. Part of that is expected to go to the relief of the saints, those who are struggling in, in, because of famine and other things. And so they've not done a good job of fulfilling that. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians 8 to them to say, get after it. Let's, let's keep that pledge. Let's, let's do what we said we were going to do. You know, sometimes in, in churches we have building campaigns and, and, and we have pledges. And growing up, they used to talk about that. And, you know, I was a little kid in church and I'd listen to them talk about these pledges. And, and, and I'd say, Mom, you know, what's that? She said, it's something you clean wood with. <laughs> If you make a pledge, keep it. If you make a commitment, keep it. The church at Corinth had made a commitment. And so Paul calls on them. And one of the things that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 is he says, I want you to remember the example of the Macedonians. Do you remember the example? He says, the Macedonians have given out of their extreme poverty for the relief of the saints. God takes this group of believers in the churches of Macedonia who have very little financially and he uses, he blesses, he multiplies and he stewards what they invest to make an impact on the people of God. 
So the gospel advances when the church has little political power. And the gospel advances when the church has little numerical power. And the gospel even advances when the church has little financial power. But here's what I want you to know. The gospel cannot advance when the church has little spiritual power. The gospel cannot advance when the church has little spiritual power. In two weeks, on Sunday morning, I'm going to preach Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. Some of you are in D groups and you've had that reading in just the last few weeks. In that passage, we hear in chapter 6 and verse 5 of Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus could not do very many miracles because of their unbelief. The lack of faith, the lack of obedience to the faith, the lack of the power of the Spirit inside of us, it hinders the work of God in us and the advancement of the gospel. Unless we should forget that, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he said this to the leader of the people of God in the church at Ephesus. Paul said this, If you are going to preach the word, and if you are going to do the work of an evangelist, both of those are things he calls Timothy to in chapter 3 and chapter 4, then Paul says this, Timothy, you must fan into flame the gift that was given to you through the laying on of hands, and you must remember that God has not given you a spirit of what, church? Timidity or fear, but God has given you a spirit of power and love and sound mind. Paul says to the pastor of the church, If you lack spiritual power, you'll never accomplish spiritual gain. There's a word for us, church. It's a promise of the Holy One that the gospel goes forward and the church is built and the kingdom advances. Even if we don't have all the financial resources and even if we don't have all of the people and even... If we don't have the favor of the government, but if the people of God in the house of God lack the presence of the Spirit of God, we're doomed. Jesus says, I know you. You lack little power. You have but a little power, but you've kept my word. Begs the question for us, doesn't it? What is Jesus' word that they've kept? He says in chapter 3 and verse 8, Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What's this word that they've kept? Well, we might, we might be prone just to say, well, it's the gospel. That's a good Sunday school answer. It probably fits, but I think there's more to it. And I think that because of verse 10. Look down at verse 10. Jesus says this, because you have kept my word, and then he tells us what that word's about, about patient endurance. When Jesus says they've kept his word, they've not denied his name, that word is a word about patient endurance. It is a call to perseverance. It's a call to endurance. It's a call to long-suffering. 
It's a call to faithfulness. What Jesus has done is he has called his people to persevere. He said, well, where does Jesus do that? Well, Jesus did that in his teaching with the disciples. Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 23 that it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. Jesus expects that his people will not give up and will not give way and will not give out, but that we will go on in obedience to him. And so if Jesus says that the church at Philadelphia has kept this word, then we have to ask, what does it mean to keep the word of Jesus? And here's what I think it means. It means that we're to be true to him. So you remember that Jesus says that he is the true one. He has been true to us and he is true to the Father. I believe Jesus calls us to be true to him. And so I've used this acronym, TRUE, T-R-U-E, and I want to give you four points that I think are, are necessary if we are to be true to Jesus. And the first is this. If we're to be true to Jesus, we must trust that Jesus is more powerful than earthly troubles and spiritual trials. If we're to be true to Jesus, we must trust that he is more powerful than earthly troubles and spiritual trials. You are going to have, and you already have had, and maybe right now you are having earthly troubles and spiritual trials. Earthly troubles are when you buy a new house and you wake up the next morning and stand in five inches of water because the tub doesn't drain. That is not the persecution of the enemy. That is just called life. It's all better now. We have a plumber. It's great. <laughs> Can I also, this is not, has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just good. Can I tell you what a delight, I mean, I mean this sincerely, what a true delight it is to wash clothes when you got your washing machine back after months of not having your washing machine. It's just a great thing. I have been washing clothes and singing praises and I'm just like joyful over this. It's a great thing. Okay, so that's a side note. Stan Pritchett, my, my pastor growing up, would have said I, that was chasing a rabbit. Um, so we'll let that rabbit go now. We have earthly troubles. But sometimes we have spiritual trials. And the question for us is often, how do we know when an earthly trouble is more than that? How do we know when it's become spiritual? And I think the way that we know that we've moved from earthly trouble to spiritual trial is, one, when the intensity heightens and when the immensity widens. When all of a sudden we have more trials than we've ever had before or when the nature of our troubles is greater than it's ever been, then we should likely believe that the Spirit of Holy God is trying to garner our attention so that we might be refined as gold in the fire. And in the middle of earthly troubles and spiritual trials, we have to trust that Jesus is the most powerful one. And the reason that we have to trust that is because of what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. You have, you have but little power. If in myself I only have little power, if I only have limited resources, 
If I only have just enough energy or just enough charisma or just enough wisdom or just enough money to make a go of things, if I'm wholly and completely dependent upon the sheer mercy of God in my life, then I better trust that Jesus is the most powerful one. I have to exhibit in my life, in the middle of the darkest days, that my Lord is in control of my life. On the Sunday after my daddy passed away, I got up early that morning. I was going to preach. And um, I sent Mama a text message. It was probably 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, Mom, I said, you, you got to go to church this morning. Daddy was a Christian. He would have been in his place in worship. It's our job to bear witness to that. I got to go do my thing. You got to go do your thing. God's going to be with us. Mama told me later, she said, I wasn't going to church that morning until I read that message. <laughs> Nothing like a preacher kid to give you a little guilt. But the next day, I got a text from our friend Patty. And Patty just simply said it was... So good to see your mother in worship giving praise to Jesus. It's that quiet witness to the goodness of God, trusting that he's the most powerful one. We're called to trust. And number two, if we're to be true to Jesus, we are called to rest, to rest in the love that Jesus has for his people. Listen, Jesus loves you, and he loves me, and he loves Elkdale, and he loves his church all around the world, and Jesus loves the Baptists, and Jesus loves the Methodists, and Jesus loves the Catholics, and Jesus loves the Episcopalians. Jesus loves all. He does. He does. He loves all of his people who love him. And Jesus has revealed his love to us personally. When the Spirit of God invades our life, opens our eyes, and causes us to see, we experience the love of Jesus personally. And Jesus promises that he will reveal his love for his people publicly. This love will cause Jesus' people to reign over his enemies and their enemies. Jesus is intent on showing that his people enjoy his favor by faith. If you look at verse 9, Jesus says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus recognizes that there are people who are opposed to him. And those who are opposed to him, those who have denied his name, those who have denied that he is the Messiah, they are his enemies. And while there is a holdout of salvation to the end for them, there is also the assurance that those who are the enemies of Jesus 
including those who have an ethnic tie to Abraham. They will be beneath the feet of Jesus, and here he says beneath the feet of Jesus' people. When we think about this, there's a background, there's a lot of background passages, but I want to point us just to one. In Isaiah chapter 60, the first 14 verses, particularly verse 14, but I think to get this, we need to read the whole thing. So let me read this to us. In Isaiah 60 and verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see. They all gathered together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with the acceptance of my altar and I will beautify my house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. When Jesus says that those of the synagogue of Satan will be beneath the feet of his people, He is referring to the long foretold promise by the prophet Isaiah that one day at the end of time, Messiah would come and would establish a permanent rule for the people of God. And that that rule would see the destruction of every enemy of God and his people and the deliverance of every one of God's servants. And all of the echoes of Isaiah 60 are found throughout the Revelation. When you hear that word about the gates being open, that points us to the new Jerusalem because that gate never closes. 
When you hear about the wealth of nations being brought into this dwelling place of God, that's exactly what John foretells, that in the new Jerusalem, the glory of the nations will be brought in. When you recognize that every kingdom is being forced to bow down and the ones who do not will be destroyed, that foretells of Revelation 11 and 15 where we hear that one day the Christ of God will be made manifest as king over all the nations of the earth and all the earthly kingdoms will be his. So when Jesus says, I want you to rest in my love. I've revealed it to you personally. I will reveal it publicly. He calls us as the people of God not to seek out vengeance against those who would oppress or persecute, but to rest in the one who will one day have vengeance on our behalf. The church at Philadelphia had little power. And certainly they lived in a world that was not inclined to advance their cause. And they would have experienced hardship increasingly on account of their faith. And so Jesus is saying to them, you don't have the power to fight on your own, but don't worry about it. You don't need to fight on your own. I'll handle this for you. Won't be in your timetable, but it will happen. The third way that we stay true to Jesus is that we use what we have. And what we have is the gifting of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus says in chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11 this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast what you have. Now there's a, there's a song going through your mind, isn't there? Some of you, children of the 80s, 70s maybe, some of you, 90s even. You got to hold on to what you got. Anybody? You're going to remember this Wednesday night Bible study now. Jesus says you've got to hold on to what you've got. And what you have in your life, if you believe in him, is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. It's the Holy Spirit that equips us. It's the Holy Spirit that seals us. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us. It's the Holy Spirit who keeps us. The Holy Spirit in you is yours by faith. And the indwelling of the presence of God in your life is something to be cherished above everything else. When Jesus calls us to hold on to what we have, what we have is Him, His Spirit, His manifest presence. It's that that causes us to know we belong to him, that we really are his by faith. We must use the gifting of the Spirit to endure. For we're called to hold fast, to not give up, to not give way. 
We're called to hold fast, so we must lean into the Spirit and Spirit's work in us. And then if we're to be true to Jesus, we must endure until we realize the victory of our faith. Jesus says in verse 12 that the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. We are called to endure until we realize the victory of our faith. Many of you have endured a lot of things. You've walked through many trials and troubles. When we sing the hymn, you can affirm, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But the real danger that lies for the people of God is that we might give up after so much endurance and not persevere to the end. There are many who walk away from Jesus. And here is the call that we are to endure until we realize the victory of faith. And he shows us what that is. Here is what it means for you to be victorious. It means to be at home in the house of God forever. When Jesus says in verse 12 that he will make those who conquer a pillar in the temple of my God, Jesus is saying, I am going to build you in to my dwelling place. You are going to be like the pillars, the columns in the house of the Lord. You're going to be a fixture. You're not going anywhere. You're factored in. You have your place. You're there by design. You'll never depart. Of course, Jesus doesn't mean that you'll be a real pillar. He says that you'll be like one. He means that you'll have your place in his home, in his house, in his presence forever. It's no little thing that we have the words of the 23rd Psalm ringing in our hearts when we walk through difficult moments and we remember that God pursues us to the very end of our days by sending those heavenly hounds goodness and mercy to nip at our heels until the day that we should be driven in to the house of the Lord forever. That is where we're going and that is where we should long to be. Heaven is sweet, dear friends. Heaven is sweet because it means the absence of all of our troubles. And heaven is sweet because it means the reunion of all of our friends who've gone before us, who knew Jesus. But let us never forget that the reason that heaven is sweet is is because it is the manifest presence of Almighty God. What Jesus promises to those who conquer is for us to know Him, to know His presence, to never depart from His glory and grace, to always walk in the light of His love, to always be worn by the sunshine of His face, to know the victory that is His in His resurrection because we have known Him in the suffering that was known at the cross of Christ. What Jesus longs for His people is that we should overcome by faith, by the word of our testimony, and by the blood of the Lamb that we should endure until we are at home with God forever. Jesus tells his people that an hour of trial is coming on the whole world. And he also tells them how they might avoid it. 
In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Just make a note because of time, Mark chapter 13, verses 3 through 13, and the first half of Matthew chapter 24. Go look at those, and that'll give you a little bit of an insight into what Jesus means when he talks about the hour of trial. But the thing I want to say at this point, we'll dive deeper as we go further in the book, but what I want to say at this point is this. When Jesus says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the idea here of keeping is, is not of, of prevention, right? Sometimes we read this as though Jesus is preventing us from seeing the hour of trial, but that's not, that's not right. This, that's, that's not the right idea here. Instead, what it means is instead of prevention, it means preservation, It's that Jesus is going to preserve us through something. And when it says that he'll keep us from the hour of trial, that word from, it can just as mean easily mean through. It's a preposition. It has many meanings. And so I think what we're to understand here is this. In the context of Jesus saying, because you have kept my word, I will keep you. Here's how I often say this. Jesus promises to preserve us because we persevere. He preserves us because we persevere. You can just as easily turn that around. We persevere because he preserves us. It works both ways. Depending on the passage of Scripture you're reading, it will read the other way. What Jesus has in view here is this. It's the one who perseveres. It's the one who endures. It's the one who conquers. It's the one who overcomes, who is really mine. And the ones who are really mine will not be undone by the hour of trial. Instead, they will persevere and be preserved at last. Finally, Jesus, to reiterate, says that he will build a house for us and there's a place in it for us. And so he calls us in verses 12 and 13 to listen, to hear what he has to say to us, and then to do it. One word to the church at Philadelphia. Hold what you have. You don't have a lot of power, but that doesn't stop the gospel. Not financial power, not numerical power, not political power. But hold on to what you have. And what you have is the Holy Spirit who seals you for the last day and causes you to endure to the end. And if you'll hold on to that, then you'll make it. Father, we pray on this day, by your grace and for your glory, you would keep us your church at Elkdale, all your people, all your saints. And that as we experience your preserving power, we would be caused to persevere, to endure to the very end. And oh God, we pray that you would make us aware 
of how the gospel might continue to advance in the city of Selma and to the ends of the earth. And may we never be hindered by our little power because we have all that we need in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.